Good morning, everyone. Aloha. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on your time zone. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely still morning. I, I, I need to go refill my coffee now that I think about it. I haven't gotten out of bed yet. But anyway, <laughs> welcome to Decrypting AI, our weekly chat session, talk story session, Twitter spaces, X spaces about uh, what's going on in the vast and fast-moving, potentially churning world of artificial intelligence. That's right. So, and uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. It's it's interesting. This week has been it. This week has been very interesting for AI because you have uh, competing AI coming out now. Um, we know Elon talked about uh, X AI a, a little while ago, and apparently that's launched it at least for uh, on a limited basis for a few people. And he's been really talking it up this week. Yeah, you've got the new entry there. And of course, AI has been on the global stage with the uh, the Bletchley Park Summit in uh, the UK. And of course, President Biden's executive order as well. So from the very top of the planet or human planet, AI has been in the news, but what story has you most excited to talk about this week, Jason? Well, I think Grunk is a great place to start. Grok is a great place to start. Not Grunk like the football player, but Grok, G-R-O-K. And it's interesting because it's natively connected to the internet, they say, and which is, I guess, good if you want to have like current up-to-date responses from your chatbot. Uh, but then at the same time, it's, it's tied in some way to Twitter. Like that's where it gets its information, like a lot of its information from, which I'm, I'm skeptical about because depending on which side of the aisle you fall on is whether you believe news on Twitter is, uh, good or not. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's the best place to be importing your data from. But it's almost like saying, hey, we're going to train our AI on the comments in YouTube. Like, this is probably the worst place to get an idea of what the world is like. I mean, we all saw how Microsoft's first attempt of a Twitter-connected bot ended, <laughs> ended when they say, hey, here's a cute, um, innocent, uh, one-day-old chat bot called Tay, named for Taylor Swift. Uh, why don't you all talk to it? And then it turned into a raging, racist, angry, anti-Semitic person so or ai in that case the other thing that i thought is fascinating is that because elon is elon musk um it's even though it's going to have this amazing access to the very latest conversations on twitter it's also going to be funny and sarcastic and have an attitude and that that seems like not great what do you think well I guess it depends on how your humor is. Uh, I can't, I can't really see. Well, okay, because other tools like Siri and Alexa will try to be funny too. Like you can ask Alexa, Alexa to tell you a joke, and it will. But this is like conversational funny. Like if you were talking to one of your friends, and I guess as long as you remember to turn that off when you're trying to do something professional, you shouldn't have a problem. My question is, what happens if you 
do forget to turn it off, will it respond to your inquiry about, you know, what President Biden did yesterday with some type of joke about President Biden? Well, I didn't know you could turn it off. That would be helpful. And the other challenge is that, you know, Siri and Alexa try to be funny, but in that dad joke kind of benign sort of way. And it's clear that Elon Musk wants it to be more biting and, of course, more honest and transparent and non-politically correct. But that, unfortunately, I mean, that kind of sense of humor is very personal. And like you you described it as like you're talking with your friends, you have a bunch of in-jokes, some things are appropriate or inappropriate depending on the context. It's not going to have that. So I, I just feel like it's asking for trouble. But still, Competition breeds excellence and innovation, and um, I thought Jose did a good write-up about how Grok and XAI's AI is probably underbaked and actually underpowered, but it's a start, and it's uh, another player, and certainly right now there are very few. So, you know, we'll give it some time, <laughs> I suppose. Well, yes, uh, I think I, I think one of the reasons why we may feel that way is because it's it was rushed and i and i believe the reason why it was rushed is because he was trying to get ahead of open ai's first dev day which is where sam altman announced a bunch of new features to chat gpt and gpt4 so his you know you want to get ahead of that it's like you don't want to premiere your movie the same day taylor swift premieres her movie you're going to get overshadowed so you release it the week before you release it two weeks before something like that so that's what he did and then on the next day OpenAI had their dev day and you know sam Altman is introducing gpt turbo uh dolly and um browse with bing are now integrated directly into chat gpt4 you know and it, there's all these things that would definitely draw people's attention away from what XAI was doing. So that's why he did it. He announced it and released it before they announced their new things. Yeah, the timing was pretty transparent. And unfortunately, as Jose pointed out, uh, XAI is coming out with a half-baked, under-prepared, text-based generative AI tool, whereas now all of the conversation about AI, thanks to OpenAI Dev Day, is about multimodal, fully integrated visual, audio, <laughs> and text-based AI. And now the idea of just being able to text back and forth with a snarky chatbot is kind of passe. But uh, is that a high? Is this a high or a low or an uh-oh for AI, Mister Nelson? Uh, it's a it's a high just because you're seeing a lot of new tools coming out. Uh, It's a low at the same time because you had one product that was just thrown out there (laughs) and and basically is riding on the the, the name of its founder for its popularity. I don't think anyone would have paid attention to Grok if Elon Musk wasn't tied to it. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's the high as well because of just the idea of competition, another player using a different data set, access to the internet. Um, I think the the challenge is, like, I would be excited about an AI trained on Twitter two years ago. I am not excited about an AI trained on Twitter today. But 
There are people that like Twitter today, so they're going to like XAI's chatbot and, uh, you know, have at it. You, you, you do you, folks. It's, it's, it's great. Um, what, uh, what else is on your um, hit list for AI news this week? Well, we do have to talk about Bletchley Park, which was the AI summit in, in the UK uh, over the last, uh, I believe it was actually last week after our last episode. And you had 29 countries plus the European Union sign on to basically a declaration of AI safety, transparency, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, you're, they're talking about you know, being uh, transparent, co uh, collaborative, inclusive, which is fine on paper. But if you know anything about the way governments actually work, that's probably not going to be very transparent because why would you want to give a rival, even if they're supposedly your friend, an edge in AI development over you? It's uh, kind of like with the, um, you know, we have these different groups who are coming at AI for very different reasons. For example, if you're in America, AI is a business thing. AI is a, uh, maybe a social media thing. It, it may be a chatbot thing, like if you wanna upgrade Alexa like Amazon did. But if you're coming from a developing country where news is scattered at best, AI is a threat because someone could use it to pass along misinformation and cause harm in your country and you have no way to to go and say okay well that's not true and this is how we can prove it like you can in more developed countries and that's something that the united nations has been sounding the alarm on for months that that's their concern about generative ai around the world well i think it's interesting just in this last six month period right i mean this is how fast ai has basically be taking over the agendas of the world is that it started with, you know, one or two really prominent computer scientists saying AI is dangerous. Let's, let's be careful about this. Then, a you know, an industry letter, then it's a coalition of huge companies saying, we think that this is something we should be paying attention to. Then it makes it to national legislatures and then it makes it to the UN. And now this global conference, here we are, it's not, the year's not even over yet. And um, we have these international declarations about AI needs to be treated with caution. And I think that, I mean, compared to other past fast-moving um, technology, I, I don't think we've we've seen this kind of concerted attention before. I mean, everybody was comparing it to Oppenheimer, you know, six months ago. And I think everybody sees that parallel and is trying to avoid it. But I agree. I mean, it makes sense because... AI doesn't doesn't respect borders, so obviously, if one country does one thing and another country does another thing, then really it's the more lax government that sets the stage. It's the weakest link, basically. So a global, you know, coalition about this makes sense. But I agree that uh, regulation and governments are generally not the most uh, agile, and certainly lead to unintended consequences when they put these rules in place. So. Uh, you know, hard to say. Hi, low, uh oh, I'm I'm kind of on the fence there. Well, it's okay. Well, before I give my answer to that one, we have to also talk to the fact that these regulations are coming out years after they should have, because you know AI as a concept is almost a hundred years old. That's if you don't want to get into the philosophical metaphysics 
aspect of artificial intelligence, which dates back to in the ancient world, but you are trying to pass legislation on something that's already in everyone's phones. So how, how do you expect to pass meaningful legislation for something that's already in the wild? The genie's out of the bottle. So I would put it as a low because this is something that they should have done years ago. Well, as you know, I say the only reason why it became a crisis this year is because journalists realized that it was a threat to their jobs, and so now it's the biggest issue in the world. But I think we're kind of past that. Um, I do think that uh, it's hard to say that they could have done it or should have done it years ago because I don't think anyone understood how these models were going to get built, and that's really the challenge. The reason why it's being it being too late is sort of like saying, well, I just baked the cake, but now I've decided I don't want it to have any sugar in it. You can't remove that ingredient specifically. And just like that, you can't say, oh, now that we're moving forward, we want you to remove all of Taylor Swift's recordings from the model. You can't. It's just blended in there. Um, there's no going back. So on that respect, I also agree. I wouldn't call it a high. Um, I'm going to call it an uh-oh again, based on the track record of regulation, <laughs> it's uh, unintended consequ consequences and the lack of agility to address, which kind of ties to what you're saying is that it's too little too late. The other thing that came out of Bletchley Park was a comment from Elon, who said that, you know, AI is getting to the point where one day people won't won't need to work or the way it was framed is that people won't have jobs but what he said was people won't have to work because ai will be able to do the mundane menial stuff and you could just do whatever you want and you know follow your passions and if you want to have a job you can and then he talked about a, a basic universal high income you know it would be a, a more wealthy society and when there was a uh in response to that uh deep minds uh founder uh what's his name uh mustafa suleiman they basically said you know pump your brakes this isn't nearly where uh ai is or will be in the foreseeable future you know maybe 15 20 30 40 years from now sure but right now that's like just saying, you know, if you've, you know, rub this lamp, the genie will come out and make all your wishes come true. In fact, the genie was referenced in our article because that's the way that it was described. Well, I, I, my, my, my challenge here, and I mean, I don't remember about a month ago, uh, Mark Andreessen, the, uh, the venture capitalist, A16Z, um, very obviously influential personal person in tech circles kind of wrote what he called the optimist manifesto. Like he was basically saying, we shouldn't be afraid of technology. Technology is wonderful. It is going to make the world a better place. Like completely um, positive on the, the potential for technology on humans. And uh, the, the commentary coming out of that was like, that's great, Mark, but have you ever met a poor person? Like that's, that's my feeling about, Elon's sort of declaration that, well, AI is going to mean we don't have to work anymore. Yay. Like that's easy for you to say, given right. your perspective and position in the world. But if you're working three jobs and you, you're, you're still living in your car, like that's probably not, you're not going to be the a, a beneficiary of AI in your lifetime, probably. Uh, 
I do think that everybody is correct at the degree of disruption, but I, I definitely think that people see differently what the impact of that will be. Like, there are some people who say that, no, there won't be any jobs because of AI is a good thing, but I think a lot of people who rely on those jobs would disagree. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's like with the uh, driverless trucks. Sure, driverless trucks are interesting, driverless trucks are cool, but if that ever became mass-produced, there's a lot of truck drivers who will be put out of business, uh, out of work. And it, it's almost like the, the meme a few years ago about telling people to learn to code. Like, you lose your job, we'll learn to code, right? We're like, well, no, that, that's a terrible thing to tell somebody, no matter how you feel about that person, because not everybody can do that. So to just say that, oh, now that AI is here, you can follow your passions. Well, no, because I still have children to feed. I still have a house to pay for. I can't just go start painting. So, <laughs> so you know, it's like it, it, it's almost like um, it's almost like when you have someone who just says something like they think it's being clever, but it's really being disparaging. So it's like, OK, slow down. Think about people. Think about their lives. Think about their daily lives. Just because you have the ivory tower doesn't mean everybody else does. Well, that sounds like Elon Musk in a nutshell. But I mean, actually, I think it's even more fundamental than that, Jason. I mean, uh, the, the challenge when everybody was talking about um, driverless trucks and putting truck drivers out of work is that, uh, frankly speaking, that's still a, not an enormous uh, set of the population. I mean, I think that the reason why AI is disruptive is because we've been pushing everybody planet-wide toward what we call knowledge industries. Like, we don't need you, we, you know, stop focusing on driving trucks or painting houses or uh, clearing drains. It's all about code and um, smarts and, you know, using your brain. But turns out, no, we've actually developed a technology that's better at being a brain than your brain. Um, so now what? In fact, what I think is going to be one likely and potential outcome of this transformation is that the trades are going to come back as the most valuable kind of work. Like it's getting to the point where you can throw a rock and hit somebody who knows how to code, but you're going to pay $500 an hour for somebody who can unplug your drain or who can build a house or who can uh, do anything with their hands because we've not been valuing those skills all this time. And it turns out those are the things that are probably going to be last to be disrupted by artificial intelligence. But in terms of high, low, or uh-oh, AI is going to remove jobs, I think the definition, it's the very definition of an uh-oh scenario there. What do you think? Oh, definitely. But, and to your point, it, it's, it's not going to be the, the, uh, uh, blue collar workers that are in trouble it's definitely the office workers who are in trouble because if i can have chat gbt create a spreadsheet of quarter three earnings guess who i don't need to hire anymore administrative assistants so it's it's just this is definitely a uh-oh but it's an uh-oh towards people i don't think that a lot of these academics and people creating this stuff thought it would be they thought it would be the blue-collar workers. It's going to be the white-collar workers. Yeah, I agree. And which is, which is again, interesting based on who we thought was going to be uh, extinct or put, you know, put, in, uh, put out to pasture first. Well, I know everybody wants to talk about monkeys. But before we get to monkeys and brain implants and all of that, I did want to ask you, I mean, I was excited. You got to interview Ben Gertzel, the, uh, the founder of Singularity AI. I mean, talk about the name of a company that is de de declaring where it, it thinks we're headed. But um, 
he's very well established, longtime um, veteran of the AI space. And I, I'm, I'm really hoping that through Decrypt, we're going to be able to interview and talk to a lot of these people who are early innovators in the space. But um, talk to me a little bit about that and about the singularity. I mean, the, the big, scary milestone that it suddenly seems literally within our lifespan. Well, it's, uh, where do I start? Um, well, the singularity, and excuse me if this is way too layman, is basically when artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence gets to the point where it's, it's as smart as or smarter than a human. It's a little bit more uh, involved in that. It includes uh, escapes human control and um, does things that we didn't expect it to do. Um, but it's the point where there's no turning back from generative from AI's development. So, but as as horror movie, a sci-fi movie as that sounds, you have a lot of people who are actually building towards that day, seeing it as not a doomsday scenario, but the, just the next evolution of technology. And that's what we were discussing in our interview. And it it's then there's a Dr. Gertzel. Uh, is a very interesting person because he not only sees it as a something to do with computers and technology, he also sees it as something to do with longevity, you know, improving our overall lifespan because we don't have to do all these other, you know, tasks that require us to really exert ourselves. We can, you know, focus on our health, focus on, you know, we can use AI to tell you know, okay, don't eat that, eat this, or this has that in it, take it out, and then it'll make it 10 times better, things like that, which I thought was very interesting. And we also talked about how AI was first, the way that it came about, because just like the internet, AI's first real investment came from the military. It was, you know, like how the internet was basically the brainchild of, of some computer scientists mixed with some government um, agencies like DARPA. And that's where the first iterations of AI came from. And then after a while, it became more of a private sector thing and, uh, ac and still academic, but mostly private sector was working on it. And that's where Singularity Net came in because he founded that with the sole purpose of developing AI and mixed with blockchain technology. The blockchain part is, I think, you know, surprising to me. I mean, I didn't even realize that that was part of that model, but they're, in fact, looking at a, a token and all of that thing, too. So turns out Decrypt was the perfect place for that conversation to happen. But I agree that a lot of people see AI as dangerous because of the, you know, it's 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 born of that initial seed of, of military and aggression and, and, and such. I think that what I got the sense um, from your interview was that, you know, he sees more of like a, like a Spike Jones her uh, movie vision of AI and singularity reaching some higher intelligence and higher plane, but still in benefit or service to um, humanity. I, I'd like to believe that that's how things are going to go. Um, perhaps it is just in human nature to uh, obsess about the worst case post-apocalyptic scenario. I think the problem is, is that we've seen the worst case scenario play out more often. <laughs> but I agree that he that he was a really interesting guy. And I think, you know, that was the 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 
artificial intelligence side, but you're going to be writing up a little bit more of your great conversation. Yeah. Yep. We're going to be doing more on the longevity side and going, going deeper into that area of his, uh, of his background and uh, work right now. Uh, the, also, we should note that uh, Singularity works with Hanson Robotics, and they're the company behind the Desdemona, Sophia, and Grace robots. And uh, on, on decrypt.co, uh, you can watch my interview with the Desdemona web robot. It's very interesting because uh, even though, like when I interviewed it, it was basically uh, a skeleton with a human face on the on the skeleton uh now it's more fully developed where it actually has like uh more human-like features and they said that that was on purpose because they wanted it to be something that people could identify with and form some type of attachment to and i've heard that on several occasions from different developers that that's the idea because if you can give something someone can sympathize with can connect with then they're more likely to use it uh kind of like how we call you know we call alexa her a lot of people do but alexa isn't a male female or whatever alexa is a robot it's it's a program it doesn't have a gender but because of the way it sounds you associate it with being a female just like siri so that's what they're that's another thing that they're working on which i think is just fascinating well, I'm definitely looking forward to the longevity part. Um, you know, when you talk about the optimistic her movie vision of AI, I do want to mention my my favorite sort of robotic AI movie, Ex Machina, uh, 2014. Dom Hall Gleason was in that. It, it's almost like that feels almost like a documentary now, um, especially because it revolves around the unintended consequences of a very, very, very wealthy tech founder deciding that uh, artificially intelligence uh, artificially intelligent robots are the way to go. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely good stuff. I'm going to just call the interview itself and the insights from it a high, um, although the concepts in it could be worrying. Um, but uh, we're about at half an hour, so let's get into your favorite topic. No, I mean, probably many people's favorite topic of Neuralink. Neuralink's been in the news lately, too. Well, I'm I'm a huge cyberpunk fan. And the idea of plugging things into your head is kind of fascinating. But <laughs> where, so Neuralink has been working on a couple of things. They already have the brain interfaces that they've been working on. But yesterday, Elon responded to a tweet um, saying that Neuralink is also working on vision chips. So it was in response to a uh, Twitter user or X user who basically was saying that their son has a um, uh, eye disease that will ruin, that will uh, over time uh, make their vision worse and worse until they can't see, basically. And Elon responded with Neuralink is working on this vision chip. Now, it's still years away, he even said that, uh, because they're still also working, uh, waiting for FDA approval. Now, going from that to his other project at Neuralink, the brain chips that was being were being tested on um, with animal trials got approval uh, this year for human clinical trials and that's fine even if you even if you forgo 
the, the way the process works, digging into your skull, taking a piece out, implanting this thing, putting the piece of skull back, there's a concern a lot of people have about how it was tested on animals. There's reports that over 1,500 animals have died because of, of this study. And I think that in itself is going to turn a lot of people off because the first question you have to ask is, what, how did they die? Like, what, what did you do to cause these 1,500 animals to die? I think that is the very definition of a low because animals shouldn't die for our advancement. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. But at the same time, how do you advance without testing it out? I know. I mean, it, it was, we even got a, a really, you know, heartfelt email about the article about the animal testing and all of that from somebody who has uh, a condition and is like, look, you know, I know that it's, it sounds horrible and the story seems kind of slanted, but it's, it's an opportunity for a better life for millions of people. And, you know, it's not just for the money and stuff. I mean, certainly there are reasons why, uh, this this line of research is being conducted, and the reason why FDA said, "Okay, time to start working with human um, subjects," but that cost is not insignificant, and I think something that you, we need to always keep in mind. And when you said, you know, when you're asking how do these animals die, that was part of the the horror of the documents that were basically that had to be compiled as a result of the, the studies, which actually explained in vivid detail what happened to specific subjects of these monkeys that had these implants put into them. And frankly, I would think you only need to read one or two of those reports before you'd have second thoughts about you being the first human um, subject to it. Uh, but the the other thing that I think was that was good for you to point out is that Neuralink is again getting the lion's share of the media attention because of its founder, but that there are, you know, tons of other companies in the space that have started before. And in fact, many are pursuing BCIs, brain computer interfaces that don't involve invasive implants or surgery, like just diodes and sensors and things like that without you know, the cyberpunk neuromancer plug-in uh, jack into your, the back of your neck sort of thing. And I think that's, that's, that's worth noting as well, that there are ways that there are people who believe that there are ways to do this without drilling into your head. Well, even if it's not for um, brain neuroscience things, there, there are other groups on out there who are also working on uh, devices to read brain frequencies. Like we did, uh, uh, what, what's the company we did a couple of weeks ago? They were using a, a, a halo crown to uh, uh, for lucid dreaming. And hang on, let me, um, and you know, this is something that you wear on your head. You don't, it doesn't require surgery. It doesn't require anything to be embedded. It's just, you know, uh, it's called Prophetic. Yeah. Uh, so Prophetic is a company that their whole thing is helping people remember their dreams better. Uh, we covered them last month. So if you want to check it out, it's at decrypt.co. And it's just something you wear on your head. It's not something that needs to go in. It doesn't have to go below the skin, which 
I think is way more appealing to people than the idea of pieces of your skull being chipped off so that we can put this thing directly onto your brain. You're not going to get a lot of takers with that, at, at least at the very beginning. And also, you know, I mean, we don't buy first generation phones anymore. So why would you buy a first generation brain chip? <laughs> you know, so I, I think it's a, uh, it, after it gets, after human trials are done and we we can see if it's safe or not, you'll probably get a better response on it. Or you might have people saying, no, thank you, moving right along. I mean, it, it really depends on the people. Yeah, you know, I really think that the Neuralink approach is sort of the Elon Musk approach, which is, you know, move fast, dig in hard, break things, except that the things you're breaking are brains. Um, I... I Look, he's not going to, I doubt he's going to have any trouble finding volunteers and stuff. The fact of the matter is, you know, I'm sure that the research on animals did reveal things that are helpful to make it less dangerous. But yeah, I, I want to stress what you did, which is you have these um, sort of headbands that people are using. We did that story where this company was monitoring brains to the point where if you imagined a song, the sensor could determine and play back the song you were thinking about. Like that's pretty intense and amazing and nobody had to get out a drill. Um, so I think that while Elon Musk is taking shortcuts by going literally into the brain, like hardwire connections, um, we're going to get to the point where wireless, just like everywhere else, is going to be the way to go. And this might just sort of go down in history as back when we used leeches to solve, to, to cure diseases. Um, I, I guess for the Neuralink approach, I'm going to call this a uh-oh for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an uh-oh. I, again, I'm, I, I really don't like the idea of testing things on animals. I mean, it, it's, and it, I don't, especially when you consider that this is very like cyberpunk dystopian stuff and it's like i can't believe like how do you how do you do that how do you walk into the lab and say hey this is what i'm going to do today like what <laughs> well you know the, the the story we published had some of the very high level details of what happened with some of these test subjects. And I was immediately thinking of the laboratory technicians who had to witness and actually deal with the aftermath of some of this. So I totally, I totally agree with you. There are, there are costs to that. Um, but all that to say, I am totally in favor of trying to find ways to help people regain or retain motor control, retain or regain vision. I mean, these are all wonderful goals. It's just that we have to be cognizant of costs. So I, I didn't have much else. Um, I thought that though it was a big week in AI and a big week for Emerge in general and our emerging technology uh, coverage, which you, thanks to you, our space cadet is getting into more space coverage. Longevity is something we're getting into. Quantum computing had a pretty good month last month. Um, anything else on your mind before we wrap it up? Um, we've got a couple of more interviews coming out with uh, AI developers in the military space. That's going to be interesting. So keep an eye out for that, everybody. And also we have a few more of these uh, lovely spaces coming out. And we hope you'll come back next week and join us. 
We do want to mention that probably before the end of the year, we are going to attempt to use LinkedIn Audio Spaces, which is LinkedIn's version of Twitter Spaces. And I know that that's probably making everyone roll their eyes, but we do want to try different technologies and different platforms and different communities. And we think that there might be a different community interested in artificial intelligence on LinkedIn, but we'll give you lots of advanced warning when we do that test on an upcoming Wednesday. But for now, thank you all for joining us for Decrypting AI here from Decrypt and Emerge. Uh, this is Ryan Ozawa signing off. Jason, you close it out. Hi, everybody. This is going to be, uh, this was great. And uh, thank you all for coming in again to uh, Decrypting AI. And we will see you again next week.